1: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Dr. Ariella J. Gross, the John B. and Alice R. Sharp Professor of Law and History and the co-director of the Center for Law, History, and Culture at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Her research and writing focus on race, racism, and slavery in the Americas, and she is the author of several books, including What Blood Won't Tell, A History of Race on Trial in America, and Double Character, Slavery and Mastery in the Antebellum Southern Courtroom. Today, we're talking about her most recent book, Becoming Free, Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. This book, which was co-authored by Alejandro de la Fuente, explores the creation of race in the Americas from the colonial period to abolition. Through an examination of three slave societies, Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, Gross and De La Fuente argue that as slaveholders in each society attempted to make blackness synonymous with slavery, it was laws regulating freedom, not slavery, that established the subordinated status of black people laws that regulated the lives and institutions of free people of color created boundaries between white and black the rights reserved to white people and the degradations imposed only on black people equally important as a comparative study the book demonstrates the divergent trajectories of free people of color in cuba and the u.s south dr gross welcome to new books in the american south
0: thank you glad to be here
1: uh, first and foremost, congratulations uh, on the book. What what really drew me to this uh, is is. The comparative nature of it, and I'm assuming that's also what what drew you and Alejandro together, uh, because I think you do a really nice job of placing the South in this 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 larger kind of Atlantic world uh, context, which I think is really special and really important. I think oftentimes we understand the South solely in relation to the North, um, and you really shatter those in a lot of ways. So uh, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of insight into where this collaboration uh, really grew out of and why you thought it was was so important. To, to examine these three slave societies,
0: um, yeah, absolutely. Um, a, as you suggest, you know, we're both really interested in in thinking more about law in a comparative um, and uh, and more global or at least more regional context um, in terms of of New World slave societies, and I, you know, I think we we came to the collaboration from somewhat different places in that for me um in what blood won't tell i had been um looking at uh racial identity and and really interested in in expanding our ideas of the south as a place where there's a lot of middle ground between black and white, and um, and in contrast to I think uh, uh, an idea that many people have had that that uh, the, the south that the U.S. South is really black and white, and and often that was in contrast to Latin America, which is portrayed as this you know really multiracial fluid, um, and so for me it was wow after seeing how big the middle grounds were in the United States how would that change our idea of the comparison with Latin America Um, because that had been such a a traditional contrast in comparative studies whereas I think for, um, for Alejandro he was coming to it first of all I think Latin American studies in general are much more implicitly comparative That they're because the historiography is so dominated by the U.S. Latin Americanists are always making that comparison, Um, and in his case, I think he was having already worked a lot on freedom suits and coartación in Cuba, um, was you know really. in some ways, almost coming from the opposite direction, thinking, um, you know, that that uh, that the contrast was going to be greater, um, whereas I was sort of coming from the, actually there are a lot of commonalities. And and I think that that was a good, productive um know, I don't want to say disagreement, but sort of it was productive that we were coming from different presumptions and assumptions and and could kind of test them against each other as we were working on it. But both of us are really committed to um, a combination of of taking a comparative approach, but doing it from the bottom up, And, and that seems somewhat new to us in legal studies.
1: So how did you both come together uh, to, to even begin to have these conversations? Was this just a random chance or, or had you known each other for quite some time?
0: Right. I think there we could actually thank the historian Rebecca Scott, who uh, in the early 2000s started convening these groups of, I think she called it the law slavery Slavery and Freedom or, or something like that. Now I can't even remember exactly the name of the working group, but kind of gathered together um, in particular legal historians um, from several continents. Um, and we were gathering and, and meeting in um, Michigan where she was, but also in Brazil and and uh, at various conferences, putting on... Um, panels and so on and, and so Alejandro and I met through that collaboration so it was also just part of a larger conversation about comparative law and slavery and um, thinking in a broader Atlantic context um, that a number of us have been having um, for for You know, for some period of years, and then Alejandro early on tried to persuade me that we should work (laughs) on a book together, and I was that was going
1: to be my next question. Who approached who?
0: (laughs) I know I had to really be talked into it. I was Mm -hmm. really not convinced because historians don't do that very often. No, no, very few. Uh, collaborations. So we did a couple of articles first, um, which was test great. the water a little
1: bit, see how and it goes
0: the water. We did a big literature review, which I think was really helpful to kind of think about what the big questions were. And, um, uh, but I was just not sure kind of how it would work and, um, and we're quite different temperamentally or, um, Uh, you know, in terms of like, I feel like writing comes very easily to Alejandra. (laughs) Mm -hmm, (laughs) for mm -hmm. me it's sometimes torture
1: doesn't that just make you mad when writing comes easy to people i'm i'm the same way i'm like oh it just makes me so mad how quickly you just pulled that all together
0: Uh, totally and also i'm always racked with anxiety like oh you know is this gonna work is this argument gonna work is this you know where is this going i I don't know if we can do it and Alejandro has this incredible and it's uh, an amazing quality of like it's going to be great this <laughs> book is going to be so great it's going to be so important <laughs> you
1: well know, he wasn't first, wrong he wasn't first, wrong i'll say that
0: funny. so that's great and a collaborator it sort of carries you through like well i don't know if i can do it but he says we
1: can. After people hear this podcast, he's going to get requests from all around <laughs> the country, right. people wanting to collaborate with him now.
0: Totally, uh, they should.
1: Well, I love the idea of the collaboration. And, and as I suggested, I also just love the idea of, of placing the U.S. South, since this is a podcast about the U.S. South, in, in this broader conversation. Uh, but I was also interested in how you came up with the three societies. Um, why, why Virginia? Why Louisiana? And why Cuba? What do you think it was about these three places that really uh, provided some insight that perhaps was lacking?
0: Sure. So, I mean, Alejandro is an expert on on Cuba. And sure. So, by by definition, when the two of us started working together, we were thinking about some way of doing a, a Cuba U.S. comparison, but the choice of where in the U.S. wasn't obvious, and um, and Virginia you know has some some really obvious claims because first of all if we're thinking about the timing you know Cuba's uh, settled very early compared to any of the um, what eventually become part of the United States um, and and uh, Virginia is the first of course um, to uh, to import uh, Africans in bondage and Uh, And it's also historically been such a focus of the historiography about origins of slavery and racism, as well as um, of comparison. You know, Herbert Klein had compared Virginia and Cuba. It was sort of, that was sort of like the classic. And uh, and then, but then I really uh, wanted to add Louisiana. Um, partly because I had already, that's, I'd never worked on Virginia, but I'd done a lot of work on Louisiana before. And I knew what an interesting um, and important place it was. It it turned out to be important in more ways than we could have guessed. So one is that it's this hybrid in terms of the, the you know, legal uh, traditions, right? It goes from being French to Spanish to the US. So that's kind of cool to be able to see how things change, as the legal system changes. It's also New Orleans is such a crossroads, especially for uh, facing the Caribbean, Cuba and San domingue and, and so on. And so there were a lot of really interesting kind of um, circulations. And I think that was important. was important to us that it's comparative, but it's also... Um, it's not comparing three hermetically sealed societies that don't have anything to do with each other it's they're all of these global circulations and and having New Orleans as part of it really just makes that so clear and evident and uh, and important so uh, so that was the argument for including Louisiana. I think if there's a criticism uh, you know I'm And my dear friend, Jean Ebrard, who was a co-author with Rebecca Scott of Freedom Papers, you know, every time for over the years that we were working on this, he would be like, what about Brazil? <laughs> Where's Brazil? And you, you know, needed
1: a third co-author.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's the thing. We would have had to have a third co-author because neither of us is enough of, you know, has the Portuguese or, or the skills really to to do Portugal. But it is an argument for collaboration. You know, in what we might have. Uh, might have been a different
1: book. Read. Well, and I think you just bring up a really fantastic point: uh, is that once you begin to understand the South as is not just this kind of, as you said, hermetically sealed off place, uh, it is a, a part of this wider Atlantic world, a wider Caribbean world, the Western Hemisphere, and it is it is engaging with all of these different societies and people from those societies. The possibilities are almost endless for for the types of projects you can do. Uh, so I think that's really an important point that I, I, I hope readers take away from it. And, and I hope that Southern historians in particular begin to play around with more and more. It's just, what were these connections uh, like? And 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 how can we begin to do more comparative work and kind of place the South in this larger context? So man, awesome, awesome stuff all all the way around. Another thing that I find really cool is, is how you and Alejandro defined the law. And you make it very explicit uh, at the beginning of the book. You stated that the law cannot be reduced to the illusory certitude of written edicts or statutes—you see things a little bit differently—and you brought this up a little bit, but I was, I was, I was hoping you could maybe uh, explain your approach to the law and how that shaped your your like research process and the arguments that you all crafted.
0: Sure, yeah, I think that there's um, I, this is less true now than it was maybe ten years ago, but it's still somewhat the case that social historians, many of whom use legal sources all the time and, uh, you know, and have done research in, in legal archives, nevertheless, have an idea of the law as something really uh, separate from social life, as something that, um, you, you know, you find in books, it's it's codes, it's uh, high court opinions. And it's it's kind of, and there's a gap. Right. There's this gap between law and actual practice life, you know, as lived by ordinary people. And and I really think that's a mistake um, because, uh, you know, what we try to try to um, show is if you think of law as simply um, people's encounters with the state. Right. Uh, it's all of the, the places where, um, where people are, are encountering state power. And it can. And that's as, you know, as we've learned from, you know, Foucault and, and many others. Right. Is is very is actually uh, you can find it in lots of different places. Right. There are a lot of different institutions at different levels um, down to to. Um, pretty mundane local uh, uh, levels, uh, whether it's uh, actual trials or um, encounters with, you know, slave patrols, or um, even uh, people who aren't representatives of the state, but they've been given the right because just because they're white to. Check your papers, you know. Well, that's illegal. That's something about the law as well, because um, the fact that you have to carry, if you're a free person of color, you have to keep papers with you at all times, and and that you're in danger if you don't have them. Right? That's um, that's a, a piece of um, of the law as well. So so defining law um, m- more broadly as uh, as these encounters of ordinary people with different kinds of legal institutions, but also taking seriously legal ideas and doctrines, um, because um, it's not—we're certainly not saying uh, those codes don't matter at all, or what high court say doesn't matter. Often, it matters a lot. Um, but kind of looking at, at the the various different levels. Um, And and the other thing that does is allow you to see how even people from, you know, from below can shape and influence legal development, right? One of the things that we um, argue in the book is it's it's enslaved and free people of color who were really pushing on the law making claims that kind of expand and even create rights that didn't exist before because um, they're kind of taking advantage of, of all of these you know anytime that there's a little opening they'll they'll you know kind of push to uh, to expand that opening and and you know and so that's why we really ended up um, uh, focusing on um, freedom suits and, uh, and these efforts of um, free people of color to um, expand their rights. W- when we started out, we thought it was going to be a study of law and slavery, and it ended up being really a study of law and freedom. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that
1: one was- of the really great contributions, I think, that this book makes, is it kind of flips the script a little bit, and it's looking at the ways in which like f- laws and efforts to restrict what free people of color were able to do is really shaping the understanding of what it means to be black and an enslaved person. I thought that was a really awesome and, and fresh perspective that was brought to this.
0: Thanks. And I think it, you know, in part it feels fresh because it was like kind of surprising to us. Like it was not what we were expecting the book to be. And, I, and that I think is one of the, You know, for me, one of the fun things about being a historian is that, like, we, of course, we start out with hypotheses and, you know, and arguments, but also we really, what we find in the archives can really change and shape where, you know, a project ends up going and what the argument ends up being. And and I really, you know, that's really exciting.
1: Well, I think it was great. And honestly, when I first, read the book, I was a little concerned, like, okay, it's a comparative study. Are they just like recycling old arguments that other people are making and just saying, see, look, this is what it looked like in comparison. So I was uh, not not to denigrate anything you all were doing, but I was like, oh, this is great because it's a fresh perspective, not just a, hey, look, here's two things. Some things are similar, some things are different. So I, I think you all pulled off something that uh, maybe many readers or skeptics of comparative work would say, uh, I don't know if you really add any, anything fresh here, but you absolutely do. And I think that's something readers will take away immediately.
0: The other thing that that um, you know, was challenging about it, and and part of why I think it did end up being more narrow, you know, more focused, and I'm glad is that we didn't want to do I mean there are aspects of it that are synthetic, of course, because you're covering, you know, three <laughs> <laughs> three and a half centuries and right, three right. places, but you know most of it is our own archival research, and and to to be to do that for the three places. Um, it, you know, that was a challenge in terms of part of why it took so long <laughs> to write. Well, you even know, just okay.
1: conceiving of ways to get all of the, the book into a, you know, 45 minute, an hour long discussion with you. It's like, how, how in the world are we going to do this? Um, so listeners just beware. We, we are condensing an awful lot of information as Ariel just suggested from like three centuries, three different places into about 45 minutes. Um, so let's dig in a little bit. Um, you and Alejandro argued that the legal and social precedents that existed in Spain, France, and England mattered deeply to the development of these new slave societies in the early colonial period. Uh, what were some of those legal and social precedents and, and how did they shape the development of race-based slavery in each society or as many as we can fit into right. the next you know, couple of minutes? So
0: this is um, again, like one of the surprises and one of the places where we diverge from, from earlier kind of classic uh, comparative, uh, work like that of Tannenbaum or Herbert Klein, etc., from the mid twentieth century, because um, we argued that um, these legal and social precedents, um, particularly in Iber in the Iberian world, particularly in Cuba, where which is settled by the Spanish, who by the time they get to Cuba have already been enslaving Africans in the Mediterranean, you know, for a century, and so they have kind of ready to hand um, a, a a bunch of you know local ordinances and so on that um, establish blackness as a degraded status. They already. Um, have uh, you know have that in the law, and and they already have um, you know a, a pretty well developed kind of racist ideology um, by the time they arrive. That says you know black people are appropriate for enslavement, and and uh, and so um, so they kind of hit the ground running in a way even more so than is true. In the early 18th century, when uh, Louisiana is settled by the French, or um, or in the early 17th century, I should say, before the uh, you know the Virginia settled first, uh, early 17th century when the British um, settled Virginia, um, but the the French. Uh, also come in with a bunch of experience enslaving uh, Africans in um, Martinique, Guadeloupe, and so on. And so it's really in Virginia, um, where they where there's much less uh, in in English law, uh, much less uh, precedent regarding some kind of basic legal questions like how will slave status be passed down? Um, Does baptism make you free? Um, And so it's remarkable that in 17th century Virginia, we still see cases where someone's able to win freedom because her father is free um, or someone is able to win freedom because they're Christian. Um, That's shut down you know, by the end of the, uh, the 17th century. And so by the time you get to the early 18th century, all three colonies are kind of in the same place, which is they've, they've established in their law that, you know, blackness and African descent um, is, if not synonymous with slavery, they're, they're doing, you know, trying to bring those closer together.
1: Yeah, what were the impacts of that that early experience with with slavery or enslaving people of African descent that that the Spanish and the French, to an extent, had? Uh, how how did that shape those those early settlements in ways that maybe differed from Virginians, where they were kind of coming up with this all on their own? Would um, you argue? I, I guess another way of saying that would you say that? the virginia colony was was more fluid and in, in in terms of of kind of race equating with degraded status uh than, than say comparing to to a place like cuba
0: i would say in its first maybe 50 years that that was true um and uh and you know and that's somewhat ironic in that um that the typical comparison <laughs> Um, or you know certainly like the Tannenbaum thesis had been you know that in, that the Spanish colonies were um, more fluid, more open, um, uh, you, you know less um, uh, less black and white and and uh, and maybe less harsh as well. Um, but it doesn't last long in in Virginia. Um, uh, and, and in the early 18th century, the real, um, you know, two things actually uh, separate Louisiana and Virginia on the, on the one hand from Cuba on the other. And those are um, the restriction on manumission, um, which in Louisiana is, is uh, Written into the first code in 1724, the first code law um, in Virginia, it's uh, it only really by in um, it late first 1691, then 1723, they try to you know shut down or or greatly restrict manumission, um, and then the other is is limiting interracial marriage, which similarly is um, written into the Code Noir in Louisiana um, and in Virginia is, uh, is only um, uh, added in later in the 17th century. But both of those things really don't happen in Cuba. Um, and in particular, manumission is never limited in Cuba. And, and that ends up becoming really important.
1: So yeah, I think that was a really interesting point in the book is that these societies that, that began with less experience with enslaving African and African-descendant people um, started to curtail manumissions. Uh, and, and the society that had much more experience enslaving Africans and African-descendant people kept that window open, um, which is an important divergence, which I promise listeners we will get to as we go through the course of the book. And as you just suggested, Ariel, uh, in the long run, you and Alejandro argue that the obstacles that Virginia and Louisiana place in the way of manumissions, um, first in this colonial period, and then again in the antebellum period, produced dramatic results. Um, you state communities of free people of color attained significant numbers in Cuba, while those in Virginia and Louisiana dwindled. And and this is really where, where the rest of the book unfolds, is in this kind of divergent trajectory between Cuba and what would eventually be um, the entirety of the U.S. South. So you brought up manumissions um, and interracial sex uh, and, and, and marriage being one of the arenas that are, are increasingly curtailed um, in the United States or in the U.S. South. Um, what is the, the concern over interracial marriage um, and, and manumission for these slave societies? Why, why do they begin to crack down uh, on these two aspects?
0: Um, so So manumission in particular is always... Associated with um, you know fears of rebellion, Um, so often it's at moments where there is some rebellion that has involved um, uh, free people of color, um, you know, bringing sort of news of freedom to enslaved people, right? Um, uh, But also. Often it's, um, it's re- rebellions that involve um, free people of African descent um, and others, so whether it's Europeans, Indians, um, you know, indigenous people. So, so, um, so some of these are efforts to crack down on that kind of um, uh, Coalition, political coalition, if you want, um, and and uh, uh, and to and in particular to make um, clearer this um, line that to align status with race, right? That um, that freedom is reserved for white people, and that. Uh, enslaved status is where African people belong or African descended people belong and um, and free people of color really challenge that um, and especially when they make claims on citizenship or when they kind of try to expand their rights and um, and so they, you know they you go through different periods when you um, when that crackdown, um, seems, um, really, uh, urgent to, to, uh, white slaveholding elites. And, and it's also, it's true in Cuba as well. Like Cuban elites would love to get rid of <laughs> or, or, you know, curtail the power of communities of free people of color. It's just that, um, both demographically sort of just in terms of numbers, it's not easy for them to do. Um, it's also, they also play an economic role that to some extent is played by, um, by white people in, um, uh, in, uh, the U S colonies. And so, um, so it's just, you know, much harder for uh, for Cuban elites to. Um, to and sometimes they even say, you know, oh, they look longingly over, you know, across the water and say, like, wouldn't it be great if we could do what they're doing and, you know, in Virginia or something? Yeah, but
1: you know, yeah. To me, when I was reading this, you think, okay, well, if you're trying to create these clear distinctions between, you know, white free, black enslaved, um, the two most important. Fields, you're going to attack our manumissions, which are creating free or communities of free people of color. So blurring that line, black doesn't necessarily equate with enslaved status and then interracial marriages. you can't create these stark dividing lines on race if those racial lineages are blending, um, and and I think that's something uh, that that is really kind of drawn out in this book. Is you know there's these efforts to crack down, and then as you pointed out, especially in places like Cuba, the efforts of the communities uh, of free people of color to push back against those that that is really where um, your definition of the law begins to become really important. Right? It's not just about the effort, but about the pushback and and what that pushback ends up resulting in. So could you talk a little bit about why, and you brought this up a little bit, but maybe uh, elaborate on it, why Why the communities of free people of color in Cuba were more successful at, at resisting uh, those efforts to crack down, whereas their counterparts in in Virginia or Louisiana um, perhaps were, were less successful to push back right. against uh, enslaved peoples. Right, gold. I mean,
0: so, so <sighs> um, our, that our answer to that is, to a large extent, um, a political one. Um, it, that is, um, in the United States, um, and and this is, uh, you know, really becomes, uh, really starts to kick in around the 1830s in particular. So, you know, we talk about, we, the the kind of middle chapter of our book looks at the age of revolution, which we periodize from our, you know, the, the, around the 18, I'm sorry, the 1760s through to um, 1830 or so as a, as a time of kind of expanding freedom in each of these three places. And, um, and then, and then there's a backlash and, um, and what's happening in the United States is that at the very moment that, you know, freedom, equality, democracy are kind of ex- expanding for at least theoretically for white people or for white men, um, that is making um, the situation of free people of color Precar, especially precarious, because if you're extending, uh, you know, voting rights, for example, to all white men, um, regardless of their property holding and so on, um, and you're saying, okay, now citizenship means the right to vote and all of these important rights um, of sitting on juries and and so on, um, and you can have that. Um, just because you're white now, um, then uh, w- then it becomes very dangerous to have um, men who are free uh, who are not white saying, hmm, we should be getting these rights too. And so um so so-called white men's democracy, right? Um, that ideology is a very racialized um, Def, uh, kind of defense of slavery as a positive good, but also um, of this idea that free people of color should just be removed. And and so colonization, the colonization movement that, you know, starts out with a little bit of anti-slavery tinge to it, you know, early on, right? This idea that like we'll emancipate um, the slaves and then send them to... Uh, back to Africa quickly becomes a much more kind of punitive and harsh idea of just um forcibly removing um free people of color to Liberia and um and giving people a a choice in fact you know the only way that you can become emancipate someone or that they That they can become free, as if they are are put on a ship um, to Africa, and so, um, so, so I guess that's to say that that the political impetus in in the in a republic um, actually. moved against communities of color. And ironically, in a more traditional, you know, monarchical society where there's very clear, you know, you become free, you, there's, you don't become, it's not a question of becoming a citizen, you become free, you just take your place in a very hierarchical society. Um, uh, That said, I was really struck by how long it took, right? That, um, you know, there's this effort to crack down on um, on free people of color that in some ways starts as early as 1806 in Virginia. They're like trying to restrict manumission, but, but freedom suits are still being brought in remarkable numbers. Um, Way past for decades past that, um, and uh, and then in 1830, after Nat Turner and you know all of uh, this um, threat of abolitionists, you've got David Walker's appeal, all this stuff. So all of these local and state regulations being passed against free people of color, and yet they're they're still finding ways to. Um, become free. they're still active communities really until well into like even the 1850s, say in Louisiana. So so I was also just struck by how how long it took really to and how much work it was to try to suppress, these very creative efforts of free people of color to expand their rights.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up this this, this revolutionary moment. You've got the American Revolution, you've got the revolutions taking place across the Atlantic world, uh, the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and you and Alejandro made the case that that in fact, in the efforts to shore up, existing institutions in these revolutionary places, even in the United States, but also uh, in Cuba as well. Uh, this actually provided a little window for, for Africans and African descended people who were enslaved to kind of press some of these claims uh, or, or these freedom suits, as you call them. Could you maybe just give us a couple of way or examples of ways that enslaved people could make uh, a claim on their freedom?
0: Absolutely. Um, in any of
1: the societies?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this idea I think that the expansion of freedom in the age of revolution is just from sort of you know this contagion of liberty idea and just you know um, people get the news and, (laughs) and, um, and there's something to that and certainly in terms of the news of Haiti, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Haiti was extremely inspiring uh, across the, the Atlantic world to, uh, to enslave people. Um, but but uh, in terms of more opportunities to claim freedom within the law, some of those were actually the byproduct of these kind of retrenchment efforts. So one example is in Cuba, um, there was uh, uh, the practice of coartación or self-purchase on an installment plan, essentially where you would uh, an enslaved person could pay a portion of her price, and uh, and then be the owner would be in contractually obligated to um, sell her freedom if she could come up with the rest of the price.
1: So this um, is not an owner-initiated. Right,
0: exactly, it uh, it can be initiated by the. Um, I mean, they have to come to an agreement, but it, sure. um, but once that's entered into, it it um, it starts to come with a bunch of other um, prerogatives, and uh, and coartación really expands during this period as a result of some Bourbon uh, uh, reforms, which are efforts. To shore up um, the the uh, imperial system, including new uh, tax um, uh, n- new taxes that are imposed um, that uh, uh, that lead to um, in, an increasing uh, focus of the crown on what's happening with Cortáción. They create a new. Uh, official position of the sindico procurador who is sort of actually has as part of their role to represent uh uh kind of subord the subordinated peoples in in their the local area and including enslaved people and they're not answerable to the colonial elites they're answerable Mm -hmm. directly to the crown and so that's really important as well um and and so it's during this period enslaved people really press on um the coartacion practice to kind of gain ancillary rights to go along with that, such as um, the idea of fractional uh, self-ownership. You know, if I have paid 50% of my price, well, 50% of my labor should belong to me and I should be paid wages for that and be able to put those wages towards my purchase price. Mm -hmm. Um, That's important. The idea of carrying paper that you could... Um, uh, find another owner, a new owner who would be willing to pay the remainder of the price and then force a sale, even if the the original owner didn't want to, which also gave a way for the community of free people of color to help um, purchase uh, kin members, community members by pooling their funds, for example, um, and and in the United States there were also in um, in Virginia, for example, there was also um, you know co- kind of some unexpected or unintended consequences of legislation that's passed during this period. Like there's a ban on importation of slaves into this was my favorite
1: part of the book if i'm being honest
0: (laughs) from neighboring states mainly maryland and that was a purely um you know it's like a, a regional effort to um you know shore up prices by controlling the supply and um but in the legislation is Uh, a penalty for the importation ban, which includes emancipation of the slave. And enslaved people start taking advantage of that by suing for freedom in large numbers, saying, hey, I was imported illegally and I should be free, and winning these suits in large numbers. And it keeps going. Even in 1806, they closed the loophole And as I found cases as late as 1830, where people are still suing, saying, you know, I was brought into the state before 1806, and therefore, um, or my mother was, you know, and so I should be free.
1: I thought that's where that argument of of like people shaping the law and how it functions was just so obvious and so unexpected. Um, You know, I think We typically don't think, you know, kind of general audiences don't necessarily think of enslaved people as as kind of engaged with with legal practices or laws that are coming out right their world is is the plantation um but yet you all make a very powerful case that that not only are they in tune with with the nuances of the law they're acting on it uh in ways that are that are forcing a manumission and i think again when we think about free communities of color we think like okay it was it was a a slave owner on his deathbed and emancipated all, all, all of his or her slaves. Uh, but no, you all demonstrate very clearly that it is enslaved people in many cases that are pushing the issue, uh, and bringing about their own emancipation in many cases against the wishes of the person that, that, that claims him as property. And I thought that was just a really telling point, uh, of, of the entire book.
0: Um. Yeah, and and I would also say that one of the things that really surprised me was just the level of um, kind of legal knowledge and how it's diffused. That um, that there were just numerous examples and and places where we saw, you know, for example, um, Louisiana changes hands to the Spanish in 1763, and Almost as soon as the governor arrives, we start seeing corrataciones <laughs> being brought by enslaved people in Louisiana. It's like they they've already got the news that um, that this is possible under Spanish law, and um, and then and then uh, as late as the 1840s. Um, they're still making claims based on that Spanish law, even though it's been the United States for several decades. And um, I was most amazed by this case I found. Um, it called Francois versus Lebrano that was, I think, 1848. Not positive about the year, but it was 1840s where, uh, where the, the um, claimant uh, said, he was a hatter, <laughs> and he said, um, "You know, I paid five eighths of my purchase price, so I should have gotten wages for five eighths of my time." And you know that was a right a a, a really standard claim under span under. The practice of cuartetismo. You know, it wasn't uncontested. It wasn't like you won every time on that. But it was a claim that was often made in Cuba, um, and and in Louisiana before uh, before the American. took over. And, you know, the American court in Louisiana just says, like, oh, that's ridiculous. They kind of make fun of the lawyer for bringing it. You know, and I'm thinking, how do they know? You know, that's incredible.
1: Well, uh, again, as we kind of make our, our quick traipses through three hundred years of history in three different places, um, I do just want to kind of, you know, emphasize that even though there are these, these these cases being brought, and and the book demonstrates how enslaved people and free people of color are familiar with the law and making the law a bend in some cases to in ways that benefit them. Overwhelmingly, in the United States South. Uh, the rights and 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 privileges that that free people of color uh, maybe could have once laid claim to are increasingly being eroded whereas in in Cuba those communities are able to hold on to some of those those traditional rights um, much more successfully so what were in as briefly as maybe you possibly can, what were some of the the, the privileges and, and rights that were being stripped away from free communities of color in the United States um, that that made this connection between blackness and enslavement much more more firm?
0: Yeah, I mean, starting in the 1830s and especially in the 1850s, what you see are, um, just the exclusion of people of color from public life, kind of the impossibility of um, the the claims to citizenship that that many free people of color are making, um, but but they're they're kind of hitting this wall. So, um, if for example, you know, in New Orleans, there's a there's a militia of free people of color. They They fight in the um, Battle of New Orleans, you know, in the War of 1812. Um, By 1834, that's shut down completely. Um, There's an act of, you know, kind of, social life in the, the cities of Virginia and Louisiana, you know, big black churches. Um, there are some schools, those are being either shut down or kind of put under white um, tutelage. Um, and and then some very basic, you know, just uh, rights of mobility. So I mentioned, you know, having to carry papers um, one of the things you see in the archives right are are hundreds of um, uh, certificates of good character that people had to carry with them to avoid um, either being kidnapped into and, and reenslaved because they didn't have proof that they were free but also um, you know to keep them from um, violence and and uh, they would, carry these certificates sort of saying you know here are all the white people in my neighborhood who vouch for me in effect Um, and and then you know kind of um heart-rendingly you know also tons of um of advertisements in southern newspapers when someone lost their papers, right? Because that was so dangerous. Like I lost my free papers, please return these to me. Um, and uh, and so as all these laws are being passed saying that no no free people of color can remain in the state or the Commonwealth and, and they have to leave the state or even leave the country, right? It, it just becomes almost impossible to um, to live as a free person of color by the 1850s, and and both Virginia and Louisiana um, by 1860 have passed so-called reenslavement laws, um, which say if you want to stay in the state, you have to choose a new master. And you know, and and a few people even do that. I mean, a very few, um, but. Uh, but I think it shows just the incredible pressure that is put on the remaining population of of free people of color.
1: Yeah, and this is where the book really gets that argument from, right? It's in the ability to restrict freedom um, and and define what it means to be a free person of color or restrict what it means to be a free person of color, that this connection between blackness uh, and enslaved status really becomes much more firm in the United States in ways that uh, it didn't necessarily develop in a place like Cuba. So can I just say, uh, as an aside, Alejandro was going to join us. His schedule just got pretty hectic here right right before we were going to record, so he had to to drop out. But you have done a masterful job uh, of tracing the history of Cuba, Virginia, Louisiana over three centuries. Um, I'm hoping everybody is giving you a standing ovation for how well you just navigated uh, across time and place. Um, But if we could zoom out just a little bit, Um, in the preface early on, you both state that you don't necessarily believe that there's a straight line from the past you explore in the book to the present day, but you believe that understanding the origins of race across the new world requires uh, us to study slavery and the slave trade from their beginnings. And so as kind of a a parting thought, why do you think it's imperative for us to, to, to look at the origins of slavery to better understand the world that we find ourselves in today?
0: So I, you know, I think, unfortunately, um, we still see so many echoes of um, the world as certainly as we see it by 1860, when we when we end the book, right? That the um, first of all, the regulation of free people of color provides the template for. the the black codes immediately after the Civil War, and even you know a remarkable number of of ways that race is entrenched in the law far beyond the black codes, um, because of course um, it's and and very often uh, you'll hear courts referring back. To those laws regulating free people of color, um, even, you know when they say, for example, you know when they say, for example, in um, uh, in Plessy versus Ferguson and the civil rights cases and um, in various cases, when they say citizenship can't possibly mean um, all of these civil rights you're claiming. Um, how do we know? Well, we know because um, before the Civil War, free Black people didn't have those rights. And so that link that's formed between whiteness and citizenship and the law in the United States has just been, unfortunately, incredibly durable. And it's not only um, for with respect to Black people, right? The Chinese Exclusion Acts and our limits on on um, immigration, I think owe a lot to the limitations on the mobility of free black people at, um, before the war. So um, um, unfortunately, um, I, you know, I think we're still dealing with the legacies of, um, of what we, the history that we trace in this book.
1: Yeah, I think in a lot of ways you you kind of make a point that was also present in the beginning of the book where you, you say it was it was the Spanish experience enslaving Africans for so long that allowed them to kind of jump into Cuba ready to 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 form these these boundaries because they already existed. Uh, and in many ways after after the Civil War is over, it is the decades spent regulating free communities of color that allow white Americans to kind of jump back in and say, no, 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 no. This is how we're going to uh, define this new status. Um, it's not slavery, but it's it's certainly not going to be equality because of that, that holdover. Well, uh, Dr. Ariella J. Gross, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is Becoming Free, Becoming Black, Race, Freedom, and Law in Cuba, Virginia, and Louisiana, and is now... It, is available now through Columbia University yeah. Press, and uh, anywhere Cambridge. else you want to find, I'm sorry, Cambridge University Press, mm-hmm. I apologize, yeah. uh, or anywhere else you, you, you find your books. Um, thank you so much uh, for coming on. And um, again, we apologize that Alejandro couldn't make it. So I, I, I doubly appreciate you filling in uh, for him as well. Uh, and thank you for listening to New Books in the American South.